Welcome everyone. Happy New Year. Just in case some of you are wondering, yes, we are still singing Christmas songs here. We are still celebrating Christmas here at St. Mark Church, and not just St. Mark Church, but the first century church altogether is still celebrating Christmas. Many of you are aware of the song, the 12 days of Christmas my true love gave to me. Yeah, partridge in a pear tree. So what's, what's the history between the 12 days of Christmas? From the early centuries, Christians would celebrate Christmas for 12 days, and this is where you get that cheesy song. So they would celebrate Christmas for 12 days because they viewed that the time between the birth of Jesus and the time the Magi came was 12 days. So this is why a festive celebration of us celebrating the birth of Christ is for 12 days. So this is why we are still singing it. Obviously, the church Christmas is this coming Thursday night, and from there, for 12 more days, we'll be celebrating the birth of Christ until we celebrate his baptism. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand how many of you return Christmas gifts, but let me just share some stats for you. First of all, before the returning, do you know how much online spending, like every year online spent, like all, the way we purchase gifts online goes up every, every year. So between last year and this year, it went up 32% from this time last year of us purchasing gifts from online. And like, it makes sense, right? We're all getting like things at our door and, and purchasing online. What percent of merchandise uh, will be returned? What do you think? What percent of merchandise that, like, that, made, that you will eventually return? 20% is a quick load. So they say 14% of merchandise sold during the holiday season will be returned. So I thought it was extremely fascinating as far as what percent we end up regifting or returning altogether. But definitely online shopping has grown. Many, many families have a tradition. It's like after they get gifts, what do they do? Get all the Amazon boxes back and see which one are we going to return, which one are we going to go back to the store, and we try to return whatever we do not want. This ends up becoming a tradition for a lot of families. This is for our Christmas now. But 2,000 years ago, after the very first Christmas, a tradition began, not a tradition, but certain scholars, certain historians wanted to capture the event that took place in a rinky-dink town of Bethlehem. And I want to share with you a, 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 a writing from this author, his name is St. Luke, and, he, and you see in his hand in this Coptic Orthodox icon, you see him holding two things. You see him holding uh, a pen, like the feather pen thing, and then um, like a, a stroke thing for a, man, what is the thing called? Like painting, okay? So he's, doing, he's holding both is because he was an artist and he was a physician. So this first century historian was so captivated by the story of Jesus. He didn't see it firsthand, but he was so like taken back of how many people their worldview was radicalized when they experienced the love of Jesus. And he wanted to capture and get all the details, all the facts that they, that, that they experienced with Jesus. So St. Luke, as a physician, so he's very detail-oriented, like he wants to make sure he gets all the facts. This is just how his mind is wired. He's also an artist, like this is his hobby. So he wanted to capture all the details that he could about the birth of a king. Because one common thing he found with everyone he interviewed, every person he interviewed would say that their king was Jesus. And he wanted to be like, okay, I need to get all the details of his birth, the life he lived, the supernatural events and miracles he did, and about him overcoming death. I need to capture all those details, and I need to put it in writing. So this is why he did a research paper on the life of Jesus. And you and I know it as the gospel according to St. Luke. Even the beginning of his research paper, 
the beginning of his gospel begins this way. Many, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He's saying so many people have tried to capture all the details and twists and turns of Jesus' life. So many people have tried to capture all the details of his life. Many have undertaken to, to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He's like, so many people have tried to capture all the details of what has been handed down. First eyewitnesses and then them passing out to the next generation. So, so many people have tried to capture all the details of what has been handed down concerning the life of Jesus. With this in mind, since I, Luke, myself, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Let's pause right there. So here is St. Luke saying, I, I'm going to write down everything from my research that I have done, all my interviews, I'm going to take all my notes, and I'm going to put it together in this paper, in this manuscript, in this gospel, everything I'm doing. And I'm doing this for you, most excellent Theophilus. So mes many historians would say Theophilus was a very wealthy man who actually funded St. Luke to do his research. Theophilus was a man, a wealthy man, who funded St. Luke and paid him to be able to do his comprehensive research to collect all the facts of Jesus' life. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully invested, I have investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So here is his introduction to the gospel. Here is St. Luke saying, I am writing everything that I have thoroughly investigated for you to know the certainty of what I am saying. Like, see how much boldness and confidence he's beginning his gospel, his writing. He's saying, I'm writing all the details. I'm going to write down everything with 100% certainty so you can be all into Jesus just as I am all in to him as well. We have four records of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke and Matthew give us the most amount of details of the birth of Jesus. This is their style of writing. This is how they begin. So I want us to share in, in how St. Luke begins writing down the historical facts of the birth of Jesus. In those days, so now he's, he's giving historical context. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So here he is beginning with some facts. In the time of Caesar Augustus, you can fact check me as far as his reign when he was king, when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Think how crazy this is for a second, that a king, not a king yeah, Caesar Augustus is wanting a census. He's wanting to see how many people live in the different districts and the different cities. Why is he wanting to do that? In the same way why we have the census for our country, like for us to gauge where we are as a country, where do we need to allocate funds and things like that, how much taxes need to go up, things like that. So here comes the census. Caesar Augustus saying, I need to put a decree for a, for a census, for us to determine, you know, what people's profession, how much income, how much people need to get taxed. So this started to put the Christmas story into action. And of course, you know the rest of what happens of St. Luke recording the details of the birth of Christ. This is how he begins, in a very historical way of writing down Caesar Augustus asking for a decree. The opposite. St. John, a first eyewitness, very unique in his style of writing. How did he begin? By capturing 
the reality of the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and what he experienced with Jesus. How did St. John begin his record of Jesus' life? He began very di differently recording the birth of Jesus. He says this, in such a very Greek philosophical literature style, he begins by this, the logos, and we translate it as word. He's using this, this very strong Greek word, meaning like this uncreated authority, this uncreated energy. The word became flesh. This uncreated being became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And the most fascinating thing about this man who is God, he was full of grace and full of truth. This is his opening sentence of St. John, of him recording He's trying to capture the words of his experience with Jesus, that the only words that he can hold on to is what he's familiar with, which is Greek literature. So he's saying the logos, he, he, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. Like God, this deity, Yahweh, became, dwelt among us. And when we beheld his glory, he came from the Father and he was full of grace and truth. In this day and age, and back then, most people would say Christmas is the birth of a religious figure. A historical figure was born, and he changed world history and it captured the attention of so many people, but a religious figure was born. But let's face it, that has become diluted within itself, right? We kind of just omit that altogether. It's happy holidays. We kind of, we dilute it altogether. We remove the reality that all of this is anchored in the birth of Jesus, but a religious figure was born, this is how our culture takes it. But the reality is, not a religious figure was born, but if we look at the literature writing, a king was born. And you and I, that doesn't spark any emotion. We say a king was born, what is that? Okay, cool. That doesn't mean anything to us. But in the first century, the idea that a king was born in a rinky-dink town of Bethlehem, this is what captured the attention of so many people to lean toward Jesus. And we lose sight of that. For this Sunday and next Sunday, this is what we're talking about right here. The reduction or the dilution of Jesus, the Christ. The reduction or the delusion, dilution of Jesus, the Christ. We live in a time where we reduce Jesus to, 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 to make me feel good. Like when things are really bad, then I, I come to Jesus. Or so I don't feel guilty that I slept in on a Sunday, so I'm going to come to church. Or like just maybe like a, a good luck charm before a really big thing. Let me do the sign of the cross. Let me pray. And we, this is how we approach Jesus very transactional. We approach him as we're calling a friend, a backup plan, or a conscious reliever. I feel a little bit bad. I feel a little bit guilty. But you know what? Let me do some of this church stuff. Let me do a little bit of this Jesus stuff. Maybe I'll feel a little bit good inside so I feel I'm not, I'm not that bad, okay? Right? This is how many of us might approach the reality of Jesus. And the sad thing is the church throughout the centuries has captured that ideology. For many churches in different versions of church, Jesus now just becomes a good luck charm. Like someone I just feel good and warm and cozy on Sunday, but then I go back to a normal life on Monday. It doesn't really shake me up. This is why here at St. Mark Church, which is rooted in a first century version, original version of Christianity, we root ourselves in saying that we want to pursue the fullness of life, not to reduce, not to dilute, but to pursue Jesus, the Christ.
and I'll get to that later why it's the Christ. And just in case you decide to take a nap, Christ is not his last name, by the way. It's okay, so it, it, it's, that's why I said Jesus the Christ, okay? Just in case I lose you, but I'll explain that later on. We are tempted to reduce Jesus to a nice birth, he's nice, I feel nice inside, it's a cute tattoo, it's a nice necklace. Man, by the way, I'm a huge LeBron James fan, like he's a, he's a NBA player, basketball player, just for those who don't. And I saw him the other day, like on a press conference after a game, wearing this huge, massive, like, Christ, like, not a cross, okay? Like the picture of Jesus, right? And it was all decked out with diamonds and everything like that. And I, and I ended up Googling, is, is LeBron is, uh, Christian? No. <laughs> but but this, this is where we are. This is where we are. Like, it, it's become reduced to Jesus just being cool. And, and we just reduce him to a transactional figure. But if we're saying that he is not a religious figure that was born, but a king, what does that mean? So now I want us to continue to put on the mind of this physician, this artist, this doctor, St. Luke, of how he records the details of the birth of Christ. So we're going to rewind a little bit as far as the announcement of who Jesus is. I want you to capture, how did heaven declare the birth of Jesus? What did heaven, what language did heaven use through the angel to depict who Jesus is? But the angel said to, to St. Mary, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to name, call him Jesus. You and I, yes, great, Jesus, we know who that is. But in the first century, this, this word Jesus was a play on to a Latin word, play on to a Greek word, a play on to a Hebrew word, Yahshua or Joshua. And it was a play onto a word of saying that his name will be warrior. His name will be leader. So this captured not only St. Mary's attention of knowing that his name will be warrior, his name will be leader, but this is the, the fullness of his name, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Right from the get-go, the description of who this God-man will be who will be born that he will be on the throne of his father, David. So there's already an imagery, there's already a language of him being depicted as a king. This was so countercultural because you and I, when we think of a king, there's certain things that come to mind. We think of, you know, riding a big horse. We think of you being dominant. You think you have authority. But here, these are the first words being used to describe who Jesus is. And the lordship, the kingship, of this unapproachable being, now God, is now a baby. It goes against logic. It goes against what a king should be. This one question I want to ask myself and I want to ask you this Sunday and next Sunday. It seems elementary, but don't answer the question too quickly. This question should impact how you view your finances. This question should impact how you view hardship. This question should impact how you make life decisions. But don't jump too quickly to answering the question. Is Jesus my king? It's totally fine if you're not in a position yet to answer this question. Maybe you begin with the introduction questions. Should he be my king? What does it mean for me to declare that he is my king? Please, don't feel guilty if you're not ready to answer this question. But at least contemplate. Is Jesus my king for real? Yes. You're, 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 maybe your go-to answer, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm at church. He's my king. 
I'm at my church here. I'm probably going to go to church multiple times this week. So for sure, he's my king. I, I'm, I'm really, I do a lot of nice things. So yeah, he's my king. But don't jump to the answer. But contemplate on it for real. Is Jesus my king? Or is, someone, or is he someone we go to to relieve some guilt? Good luck charm. Nice necklace. Nice tattoo. The beauty of this king, he doesn't intrude in our lives. He doesn't intrude, but he invites us. He invites us to him. Do you know what happens when I opt out and I remove myself from making him my king? Do you know what happens? Do you know what the reduction is when I say Jesus is nice but not my king? Then we have reduced faith, my pursuit of him, to be just about doctrine, about a bunch of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, do this. Now we've reduced church to just being about a bunch of rites and rituals. Should we do this? Can we fast? How many hours do I have to? That's what, all, all those questions that you and I have heard, maybe, like, how, how, do I need to do this? Do I need to do that in church? All those legalistic questions, when we've reduced Jesus and we, we've opted out of making him our king, then all of a sudden, everything that we do every Sunday of us engaging in church life just becomes legalistic. What should I do? Should I donate this much? Should I be doing this? Or how much should I, should I be fasting this way? It becomes doctrine. It becomes legalistic when we opt out of making Jesus our king. Yes, maybe you and I will be titled Christian, but in the modern sense of the word, not in the original sense of the word. This is why I make a big deal of saying Christian as opposed to follower of Jesus. Now the word Christian has become so diluted. But to say I'm a follower of Jesus, what does that mean? And in the context of this two-part series, the question is this, is Jesus my king? Let's talk about some really funny people that many of us don't know much about in the Christmas story. And no, there are not just three, but the story of the Magi. So let's rewind a little bit about the three wise men. St. Matthew, uh, first eyewitness of Jesus' life, said it this way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. By the way, anytime you see any of the authors write down a king's name, they're not just, it's not just like, okay, cool. It's, it's, they're giving facts. They're giving historical facts for you to say, I, I'm, giving, I'm, I'm giving history, which has edification to life in it, but I'm giving history. So this is why he makes a big deal. So he's writing down the name of the king, king Herod. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Just something you need to know about King Herod. This guy was legit. I mean, this guy was, was not reactive, but he was so proactive how to dominate how to expand his kingdom, how to, to, to exercise his authority. He was a genius as an architect. He, he was very proactive of making sure that his king, kingdom is dominant in, in authority and in leading. So Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It always fascinates me how God would use astrology to point people to Jesus. Sometimes we think, this is theology, this is spirituality, this is Jesus. And, and we decide to put left and right lines, and anything outside is from the devil. Here is God using astrology to bring people from a different worldview and to, for them to be pointed and anchored in who Jesus is. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. 
Do you know what? You, you and I would be disturbed just like King Herod. If, if we're dominant and we're leading the kingdom, and all of a sudden someone comes and says, hey, we're here to find out news about this, this king of the Jews. We're here to come and worship him. And King Herod's like, wait, 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 say that again? King, you're looking for a king? Don't you know I'm king? Okay, hold that thought for a second. And here's King Herod pulling to the side and wanting to find out who on earth is this birth of another king. Because I'm the one king. Actually, even his will, his legacy, historians say that King Herod was so proactive that he knew how to, to break up his kingdom for his kids' sake to make sure that his lineage, his name, is still able to dominate even after his life. So here comes some people from Persia or Arabia, as some historians would say, coming and saying they're looking for a king of the Jews. You feel a little bit offended if you were King Herod. So he's disturbed. King Herod heard this. He was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where. I want to pause. Here he is. Trying to, trying to get counsel, advice, trying to find out what on earth is going on. Why, why, why is there talk around town? Why are these, these men from Arabia coming and looking for the, the birth of a king? They're asking me a king. They're asking me about the birth of another king. And here's the question. Here's the word that you and I passed through. But this is the word that shook up not only King Herod, but should shake us up as well. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. King Herod understood that this birth and the rumor of a king of the Jews was not a rumor. He knew this is not the birth of just any typical king. This baby is not just like another prophet. It's not, no, this is something different. This is the Messiah. In other words, this is the anointed one. This is the Christ. And now he feels a power struggle is happening where he feels he's not in control. You and I want to have control over every aspect of our lives. And when we're not, this is where anxiety gets the best of you and me. Where we feel pressure. We feel when things aren't, we can't control everything, it comes out as anger when we're not able to control everything. And here's King Herod having everything under control. He knows everything, just as you and I. We want to know what's happening tomorrow. We want to know when that Amazon box is coming. I want to know everything. I know where my finances are. I know everything. I know what's happening this coming week. And if anything shakes up, we're off balance. So here's King Herod being thrown off because he knows who the Messiah is. As I said before, just make sure you're still with me, Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it's a title, pointing that he is the anointed one or the chosen one. This was a king, not appointed by a prophet, because that's been the common theme so far in Judaism. No, but there's something different. For you and me, when you and I want Jesus in our lives, we pick and choose. If I ask you, do you want him to be king? Yeah, but, but not all the way. Like, I want him to be king over this aspect of my life. But, but no, my, 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 this aspect, no. I, I want him to, to be my king in my finances, sure. But my marriage, no. Or this aspect of my life in which nobody really knows about, no, it's okay. He's, he can be king here. But here, I'll pass. We pick and choose of where we want him to be king. 
little bit Jesus here, a little bit Jesus there. But no, I mean, no, no, I'll, I'll pass. But a little bit Jesus for him, for her, yeah. But me, no, I'll pass. The title of this two-part series is titled The Unapproachable. Why? Some Coptic history trivia for you. The patriarch of the church, of the Coptic Orthodox Church, in the year 1858, okay, so not that long ago, the patriarch, the, the leader of the church then, was by the name of Pope Cyril IV. Maybe many of you are aware of Pope Cyril VI, but no. If you go back further, there's Pope Cyril IV, and he was given a title, history has shown him to be the, the Pope of Reformation. This guy was like, he really thought outside the box for the church. He was, history tells us, that he was the first Pope of the Coptic Church to really put, stretch out his arm to the Ethiopian church, to connect them and to, to serve them and, and to, to, to bond with them. This is what history tells us. And he also did everything possible to connect with other Orthodox churches, especially the Greek Orthodox Church. And the Greek Orthodox Church, for, I don't know if, if you've you ever heard Greek Orthodox chant, like their hymns, it's very different than the Coptic Orthodox Church, right? It's very different, right? It's very like low, and it's it's unique. It's different. So, what did this pope do? What did Pope Cyril the Fourth do? He went to the Greek Orthodox Church, in which we are not in communion with, and he says, "We're saying the same thing. We should we should be we should be in communion with each other." So, to show a gesture for us to be in reconnecting, to to show reconciliation, for us to be together on the same page, we're going to take some of your guys' hymns and we're going to chant it in our liturgies. This is what he did. He took some of their hymns and made it Coptic, like, uh, like he put it into our style of music and used it in the church. So this is what he did. And one of the hymns in Greek is titled E Parthenos, E Parthenos. And it's chanted during the Nativity Feast in which we will chant this Thursday night. So it is from the Greek Orthodox Church, but this Pope took it, Pope Cyril IV, took it for us to utilize in our church, in which we still do till today, to show like a, a gesture for us to be connected. Obviously, it's not just this hymn. It's a bunch of other hymns, too, that have now become embedded into our Coptic tradition, but originally was from the Greek Orthodox Church to show a connection. And here are the beautiful words of this rich hymn. Today, today the Virgin gives birth to the supreme essence. The Virgin gives birth to the supreme essence. And the earth offers the manger to who? The unapproachable. Now there is the unapproachable. The supreme essence has now touched to earth. The angels with the shepherds glorify and the wise men with the star journey. For to us is born a new child. Not just a child, not just some new so-called king, but he is God who has existed before the ages. And you and I are invited to abide in him. The question in which you do not have to answer today, but the question I want us to think through, through today and next Sunday, is Jesus your king? For real, is he your king? And if you're not there, take a step back. Should he be my king? And take a step forward. If the answer is yes, what does that look like? Because him being king shook up King Herod. It shook up the Magi. It shook up the shepherds. And it should shake 
us up as well. Let's stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, all of us, including myself, get lost in the busyness and tasks and the next thing on our calendar during the Christmas season. But Lord, I pray that today, especially over the next four days, can be a time for us to, to pause, to slow down, and to embrace this one central question. Are you our king? And if so, what does that look like in our lives? Your kingdom being born in, in a small manger is what captured the attention of shepherds and magi and even King Herod. And our gospel writers wrote down and captured these details in order for Christ to be born within us now. Lord, I pray that we do not dilute or reduce you to just being a transactional relationship. We want to, 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 to desire this intimate bond with you. Lord, I pray that, that, that you fill us with your love and with your light. And through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Just a reminder that this Thursday night at 8 p.m. will be the Nativity Feast schedule. Some of you have been asking why well, I can't stay till midnight because of, of whatever reason. I get it. The first half, I, 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 if you cannot say the whole time, at least prioritize coming 8 to 10 p.m. 8 to 10 p.m. All right, for the gospel. Okay, thank you. Have a great week, and I'll see you guys on Thursday.